Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome, everyone. Welcome uh, to this LSE public lecture and hybrid event. My name is Alex Vorhoover, and I'm professor and head of department in the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very, very happy to be here with Dr. Juliana Bidetanura um, and to welcome both our online audiences and the audience here in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre today. You've joined the 2022 August Comte Memorial Lecture, which is being hosted by the department. My department of philosophy is unique, I would say, in the UK, especially in doing analytic interdisciplinary philosophy, where we do philosophy continuous with the social sciences in a manner that's socially relevant. And that fits very well with our partnership for this event, which is the School of Public Policy. Uh, and we're grateful for your support here and for the students and followers of the school who are joining us here today. It also fits well with the person who the event is named after and was set up to honor. The French philosopher Auguste Comte was a philosopher and a social scientist. Some regard him as the father of modern sociology. And he was also a philosopher of science, which is part of what uh, my department does, as well as a thinker about how to reform society, which is another thing that my department focuses on a great deal. There was a number of followers in Britain called the Positivist Society, and they endowed this lecture here at LSE. The history of the lecture is an interesting one. In 1953, the very first lecture was Isaiah Berlin, the famous philosopher and uh, historian of ideas. And he was given an introduction by Professor Michael Oakeshott, who was a very different type of philosopher, rather, um, uh, as in Isaiah Berlin's own words, extremely bitchy, a bitchy <laughs> conservative, he said, who, uh, instead of praising Isaiah Berlin, went on to poke fun at him. Isaiah Berlin had just become famous through a series of online, uh, not online, on radio lectures. Uh, and he accused him of uh, basically having just superficial fame. And this so upset Isaiah Berlin, this introduction, that he went on to deliver what, in his own words, are the worst lecture of his life. So I hope not to repeat that introduction, um, but instead to simply have nothing bitchy to say, in fact, only things to celebrate, because one of the nicest things from our perspective of welcoming Juliana here today is that a decade ago, or even a, a bit more, she was a student here on the philosophy and public policy <coughs> degree. Uh, she went on to even greater things to do her PhD in uh, political philosophy and political theory at York, and then uh, after a postdoc in Berlin to uh, Stanford, where she's now an assistant professor. She's back with us this term, and we're delighted uh, to welcome her as Ludwig Lachmann, research associate professor in our department. Uh, her work focuses primarily in questions in political philosophy, 
She's published extensively on the topic of egalitarian justice, including a recent book which will form the basis for today's lecture, Justice Across Ages. But her research extends much more widely into relational egalitarian questions, and we're delighted to have her. We're running a research seminar in which uh, yesterday we talked, had extremely lively discussions about what I was calling her manifesto for social banditism, which is stealing from the rich to give to the poor, uh, but also we'll be looking at questions of uh, demonization and other relational egalitarian concerns. So with that, please join me in welcoming this year's Auguste Comte lecturer, Professor Bidet Anur. Thank you so much, Alex. Can you hear me fine? Yes? Great. Thank you so much for the invitation uh, and for the very generous introduction. I'm glad you didn't um, roast me. This, uh, uh, this for sure uh, must have been quite the experience for Isaiah Berlin. Um, I'm glad I had a kinder introduction. Um, thank you to everyone for being here today and thank you for the online uh, audience as well. Um, so as Alex was saying, I was a student here uh, 10 years ago, and I sat in this very lecture room um, quite a few times. Uh, so it's, it's very, uh, it's wonderful for me to be here today, uh, except that I just have a little bit more work to do than the last time I was here. <laughs> so today I want to discuss um, my new book with you. And it is about um, age and generational inequalities and what we should do about them, what we should think about them and what we should do about them. And I started a master's degree here in 2008. Um, and that was in the, uh, at the beginning or in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which had many devastating effects on our societies, as you know. Um, but one of these effects was a worsening of youth and employment. And so, at the time, I remember feeling that the policy responses to this particular effect um, wasn't quite adequate. Uh, one example of this comes from France, my country of birth and childhood. Um, we have there a minimum income scheme in place, which was introduced in 88, uh, for those who know French, revenu uh, minimum d'insertion. And it was reformed in 2008 by um, then President Sarkozy. And the minimum income scheme is such that if you don't have uh, access to another source of income, you get an allowance on a monthly basis. Uh, and with the RME in 88 and also with the RSA uh, in 2008, you could only be eligible for the grant if you were above the age of 25. Um, so when the uh, policy was reformed and the age-based differential treatment was kept in place, that was in the context of young adults suffering disproportionate effects from the financial crisis. Um, the program was reformed again a year later and the RSA Jeune was introduced, so for youth, but it had more stringent eligibility criteria in place. So if you were under the age of 25, you now needed to prove that you'd worked two full-time years in the past three years. As a result of this very um, stringent, very difficult uh, additional eligibility criteria, only a few, only a few thousand young adults had received the grant a few years after it was introduced. So this differential treatment really felt uh, unfair to me at the time. And since I was embarking on a master's degree in philosophy, I decided to write on this. Um, and as you can tell, this was the beginning of 
way too many years spent thinking about age inequalities. What was really interesting to me though, was that there are a range of inequalities by age that we tend to find unproblematic. Maybe that we don't discuss much in society. You know, kids don't vote and maybe that's okay. Some people work, um, are expected to work, others are expected to retire, maybe that's okay. Um, some of us are too young to run for president, maybe that's okay. Um, those older are way more likely to own a home than those who are younger, maybe that's okay too. Um, and so there are loads of inequalities patterned on age membership. The question I really wanted to ask was, how should we differentiate the ones that really matter from the ones who don't? Another question um, is how should we distribute goods like jobs, income, housing, healthcare, and political power between persons at different stages of their lives? Is equality the value that should guide such distribution? And what does it even mean for people at different stages of their lives to be equal, to be treated as equals, to be treated fairly? So in the book, I answer these questions and I offer a theory of justice between coexisting generations, or for short, a theory of justice between young and old. Those of you who know philosophy might know that there's a huge field called intergenerational ethics. Uh, and so you might wonder if that field is kind of answering some of those questions. Um, but in fact, it has largely focused on what we owe future generations, future unborn generations. And because young and old are already born, matters of justice between them escape the complications related with non-identity, temporal distance, the impossibility of mutual agreements and reciprocity uh, that arise when focusing on duties to future generations. And so it makes issues of justice between coexisting generations look straightforward and problematic. But that's not true. They are really puzzling concerns um, of their own. One source of complication arises from the distinction between birth courts and age groups. When we compare young and old, the first way to compare them is to look at how they fare over time, their comparative lifelong prospects. And that's the issue of birth court inequalities. The second option is to look at how they fare um, in comparison with each other at any given time. And that's the issue of age group inequalities. I'll come back to this conceptual distinction very soon because it's very important, but I just wanted to signpost here um, that this disambiguation is very important to my account uh, because birth court disparities are inequalities between people over time, while inequalities between age groups can be compatible with diachronic equality. I'll come back to that, I promise. Okay, so my position is that young and old should be treated as equals not always equally and often not the same. Um, and what this means is cashed out through three principles of equality between coexisting generations. I argue that inequalities between young and old are objectionable when they are diachrony unfair, imprudent, or when they constitute a relational inequality. Okay, let me say just a couple of things about the approach I take in the book uh, before I dig in um, really the actual theory. So the first um, thing I wanted to say is that one way to understand what I do in the book is, to, um, is that I integrate age into egalitarian thinking, egalitarian justice. I try to do for age what others have done for gender or race. And in doing so, I make the case that we cannot simply apply our existing theories to this new problem 
without also rethinking our broader value commitments. We need a theory of justice between young and old, not only to establish what um, people are owed at different stages of their lives. We also need a theory to better comprehend why and how we should understand the value of equality. As I will show today, age issues are a subset of a broader problem concerning the temporality of egalitarian justice, uh, connected with the question, is equality a diachronic or a synchronic value? And I show in the book that some of the theoretical shortcomings that, it, that explain why we didn't have too much to say about this issue of age inequalities in the field um, has to do with the dominant understanding of equality in terms of distributive fairness. Through a study of the specific case of age inequalities, my book thus um, makes the broader case that relational reasons are essential to egalitarian justice and that they are not reducible to reasons of distributive fairness. So as you may have noticed already, um, I am really approaching this um, entire issue from the perspective of equality and inequalities. So why is that? Well, most uh, political philosophers stand on what has been referred to as the egalitarian plateau. Although we disagree about which particular inequalities matter, there is little disagreement about the fact that some equality should be promoted and that certain types of inequalities are fundamentally objectionable. This is because we are committed to the basic view that we all matter equally, that we are owed equal concern. Now, once this is accepted, the task of anyone arguing against particular instances of inequalities is to make the case that these inequalities betray our equal moral status. In starting this project some years ago, I thought that we lacked and needed a clear sense um, of when differential treatment by age violates uh, this requirement of equal concern. And so that's what the book does. Now, as it turns out, my commitment to egalitarianism is also more substantive. Standing on the egalitarian plateau um, does not make you an egalitarian in a more substantive sense. You're an egalitarian because you also believe that the requirements of social justice are best described by appeal to the chief value of equality. Um, so my book is also trying to provide an egalitarian account um, of how to think about age inequalities. Okay, very last quick thing before I start. Um, uh, so my book is uh, partly an intervention by way of philosophical arguments um, into the world of public policies. Uh, as uh, Alex was mentioning, I was um, doing a, a master's here in philosophy of public policy quite a few years ago. And so what I do is that I start from contentions and claims that are found in the public sphere. Um, and I build a theory that helps scrutinize, clarify, and adjudicate those contentions. The second part of the book is dedicated to um, a, a discussion of the policy implications that can be derived from the account. I exam examine workplace and labor market inequalities um, in rights and obligations. Uh, for example, programs that enforce a special right to work for the young, a special duty to retire for senior workers, and a special duty to work for the young. And I also look at inequalities in political power and representation uh, in parliaments. Okay, so I am done with the introduction. So let's crack on with the rest of the presentation. So what I have in mind is I want to give you a sense of the puzzles I wrestle with in the book uh, before highlighting some of the solutions I offer and really ending with a very quick glimpse at the full framework. Okay, 
So consider a few um, examples of ways in which young adults may be said to be worse off than their elders. Uh, and you might wonder why I put this picture here of a very yummy pile of cake. Uh, philosophers really do like to uh, use um, cakes um, to uh, visualize the notion of distributive inequalities or distributive injustice. Uh, but that's not the reason. Truly, it's here because Alex told me to put some pictures in my slides. So um, I thought that I hope that that one makes him happy and because um, that's the only one. Uh, okay, so so. Unequal labor market vulnerabilities, um, I already mentioned that one. It's really the one that I start, that started my interest, spurred my interest in this. Um, young adults are um, more vulnerable to unemployment than older age groups. And the gap tends to worsen um, during uh, a financial crisis or a context of economic uh, recession. Here is another one. In the UK and the US, there is a growing concern that those born in the 80s and later will end up having paid a higher share of their incomes to their governments for a lower entitlement to services and benefits from their governments compared to the generation of their parents. As an example, in the US, the cost of a four-year college degree corresponds to more than 4,000 hours of minimum wage compared to around 300 hours of minimum wage work in the 70s. In the UK, you all have experienced the troubling of higher education tuition fees in the past decade. So that creates what some have described as an inequality in benefit ratios. Another one uh, that you may know very well is that voting patterns are strongly correlated with age and young adults typically vote at much um, lower rates than older age groups. Young adults are also critically underrepresented in parliaments. Uh, in fact, representatives younger than 30 years old make up about 2% of the world's parliamentarian population. One last one. Uh, former British minister David Willits, for those who remember, uh, worried a few years ago that of the National Health Service's uh, annual budget, health goes to those over the age of 65. Outside healthcare spending, there is also the more general concern than wel that welfare states devote significantly more resources per capita to those over 65 than to those younger. In fact, up to eight times um, more in, OECD country, in some OECD countries. Uh, in several welfare states, that per capita spending in balance has also been increasing over the years. This has led some to the conclusion that there is a poor elderly bias in public spending. So based on examples like these, um, some may suspect that the young are being treated unfairly. And in fact, some have um, uh, raised concerns that the young were getting the short end of the stick in that context I was starting this project with. But of course, there is a difference between noticing or describing an inequality and making the case that it is objectionable or wrongful. The inequalities highlighted here are of various kinds and they are not self-evidently wrong. They may not matter equally and in fact, some may not matter at all. Take the claim that it is prima facie unfair that those older than 65, 65 consume a larger share of healthcare resources than younger age groups. When we age, we obviously need more healthcare resources to function well and be well. In some contexts, equality is not about treating people the same. It is rather about treating them with equal concern for their basic interests. Assuming that we think of the right distribution of healthcare resources in some other way than mere equality of resources, then the over 65's consumption of a larger share of those resources may be exactly what justice requires. 
What should we think, though, of an overall imbalance in per capita public spending between age groups, so beyond healthcare? Such a distribution is not necessarily unfair either. Perhaps equal spending between age groups is not a goal that we should pursue. Um, equality may require an equal but adapted treatment, which unlikely aligns with equal spending by age group. Consider also the disproportionate unemployment risks falling on young adults. Higher rates of youth unemployment are no doubt a concerning phenomenon. And yet it is not clear that the disparity itself, meaning the fact that the young can be several times more vulnerable to unemployment than older age group, is what we should be concerned about. Young adults are, more logically, are logically more likely to be unemployed than older age group because they are transitioning from the educational system to the labor market. Perhaps then the inequality is not so worrying per se, as long as it is merely transitory. If high risks of youth unemployment are the sign of the making of a generation that will be more vulnerable to unemployment and underemployment in the long run, however, the inequality will intuitively seem more worrying. But what difference exactly does it make? And shouldn't we worry about inequalities that are temporary too? After all, the young could be more vulnerable to abuse and exploitation due to their comparative vulnerability to unemployment. Okay, so what a quick look at this example suggests is that which inequalities between young and old matter is not so straightforward. Of course, one natural place to look for answers is um, uh, a comparison with um, race and gender. We might think that they offer a good model to figure out what to think of age inequalities. Inequalities like the ones we started with, just um, that I just mentioned, would be straightforwardly objectionable if there were gender or race inequalities. Think of unequal political power by uh, gender or unequal unemployment rates by, rate, by race, for example. So should we think about age inequality in the same way? After all, age, not unlike race or gender, is nothing like merit or effort. We have no more control over our age than over our assigned sex at birth or ethnicity, and yet others may fail to treat us as equals on that basis. At the same time, it is fair to say that in general, differential treatment based on race and gender tend to strike us as more evidently wrong than age-based differential treatment even when the exact same important rights or opportunities are being denied. To see this, consider the following cases of discrimination. In vote one, individuals racialized as black are denied the right to vote. In vote two, individuals below the age of 18 are denied the right to vote. In jobs one, in a context of job scarcity, a government encourages employers to give priority to male workers in the labor market, making gender discrimination legal. In jobs two, in a context of job scarcity, a government encourages employers to give priority to young workers in the labor market, making age discrimination legal. Bear with me, a couple more. Airline one, an airline refuses to employ the qualified black candidate unless he shaves his hair while not requiring the same of white candidates. In airline two, an airline refuses to employ the qualified 60-year-old candidate because they consider them to be too old to pirate the plane. And in the last example, premium one, an insurance company charges men a higher premium than women because men statistically cause more accidents than women. And in premium two, an insurance company charges drivers below the age of 25 a higher premium than older uh, drivers because younger drivers statistically cause more accidents than older drivers. So in all of these, as you understood, 
The first are cases of race or gender discrimination, and the second are cases of age-based discrimination. And I think it's fair to say that we tend to worry about uh, the first versions of these examples um, far more than we worry about the second. In fact, we do tend to discriminate by age in these respects. Most countries do deny the right to vote to children and teenagers. We often seem to deem someone fit for a job because of their age, and we sometimes force them to retire after a certain age. In fact, the EU recently considered a youth uh, job guarantee, giving priority to young people in the, labor, in the job market. And the European Court of Justice has recently ruled out gender as an acceptable basis for differential treatment in fixing um, insurance premiums. Appealing to age to fix premiums um, remains lawful. So we are more lenient when it comes to age, and this is also made clear by the comparatively low state of age discrimination law throughout the world. So the question here is, are we mistaken to so often tolerate differential treatment by age? Martha Nosbaum seems to think so. In a recent book, Aging Thoughtfully, she claims that forcing the old to retire is one of the greatest moral evils of our times. She argues that it is no less wrong to give priority to the young in the labor market by forcing the old to retire um, than it is to exclude women from the workplace. So should we follow Nosbaum and, and simply treat age discrimination no more leniently um, than we do for race and gender as a matter of rule? Or is there something special about age that might vindicate some of our intuitions? So what I want to do with you is to go through four different ways to set age and apart from race and gender uh, in the context of discrimination. If we succeed, we might vindicate the intuition that those are two different kinds of age-based differential treatment. If not, that perhaps we should treat age with no more leniency than, other, um, uh, than um, discrimination on other suspect grounds. Okay, so first, one could make the argument that at least some age ranges are better proxies for morally relevant properties like ability, competence, or experience than gender and race. In the voting examples, we can explain our intuitions by appealing to the differences in competence and capacity for autonomy of children compared to adults. But discrimination scholars are often reluctant to tolerate race or discrimination, race or gender discrimination in cases where gender and race are accurate proxies uh, for instance, for risky behavior or likeliness to commit crime. Discrimination is often wrongful and based on an accurate proxy at the same time. A firm may refuse to hire women between the age of 20 and 40 because pregnancies impose a cost on the firm and people in that group are more likely to uh, become pregnant. And yet we do feel that these forms of exclusions are precisely the one we should oppose when we regulate. So the reliable proxy explanation fails to help us isolate age discrimination because whether or not a feature of our identity is a reliable proxy is often an unnecessary condition for discrimination being found wrongful. A second compatible um, uh, way to make sense of our intuitions for the special treatment of age uh, is that age um, uh, is that the race and gender inequalities generally serve a worse purpose. <laughs> Consider airline two, the airline may simply be trying to ensure that uh, its pilots are in perfect physical condition. The purpose of age discrimination is here safety. In airline one, the purpose of the discrimination is more trivial than security. It has to do with the professional, the professional presentation of the staff. Uh, the company accommodates racist biases to maximize profits. Like the proxy explanation, that won't work though. 
And it's just by chance here that age discrimination is justified by efficiency or safety, whereas the race case is not. Gender and race discrimination are in fact often justified in that manner. Think of racial profiling. So the basic idea that age may typically serve more justifiable purposes, it's likely not factually true. The purpose explanation does not set age apart because similar purpose justifications apply to age, gender, or race. And because purpose does not seem sufficient, at least on most accounts, to justify discrimination anyway. Okay, one last attempt that fails. Um, another uh, suggestion here could be that gender inequalities and racial inequalities may be more unilateral um, than um, age group inequalities. So gender and racial uh, discrimination uh, would systematically fall uh, on those relegated at the bottom of the hierarchy of racial and sexist prejudices. Um, whereas for age group inequalities or age discrimination, it would be more, um, it would go both ways. Consider for example, um, voting and driving rights um, to the disadvantage of teenagers and the various age-based subsidies that are to their advantage. Or examples of prejudices against the elderly in the media and the dominance of elders in some political institutions. I think that's a very interesting lead, um, but I'm not sure that it is sufficiently strong to set age apart from gender and race. After all, we have reasons to complain about a very gender differentiated society or a very uh, ethnically differentiated society, um, uh, even when there is no clear winner in the game of uh, inequalities. So here is what I think is most relevantly special about age. Contrary to gender and race, Age is not a discrete and immutable feature. We all age. Age is not a club you are born in, or old age is not a club you're born in. We live our lives expecting to pass through the various categories. And as we pass through the different categories, burdens and benefits that once applied to those older than us become ours. Nothing like this typically happens for gender and race. Importantly, as a result, and I really like this quote by um, Axel Gosseries, Differential treatment by age does not necessarily generate inequalities between persons over time, whereas treating people differently based on their ethnicity and sex does. A society that relentlessly discriminates between people on grounds of age can still treat them equally over their complete lives. Everyone's turn at being discriminated comes. Or you'll get your cake uh, when it's your time. For you, Alex, I thought that would one more. <laughs> okay. Um, more seriously, you know, consider uh, youth profiling by the police, for instance, and compare this with racial profiling. What sets it apart in a morally relevant way is that it involves a kind of burden sharing over time, which is not the case for racial profiling. There's simply nothing like this. The burdens are not shared across time. We can also have reasons to distribute scarce resources unequally between age groups in order to ensure equality between persons over time. Take the example of the Youth Job Guarantee, which aims to protect young adults from long-term unemployment in contexts where they risk becoming permanently marginalized from the labor market after a financial crisis. Here, equal treatment of diachronic persons not only permits, but may require an unequal treatment of age groups. Prioritizing new entrants over those who have already enjoyed a working life of normal length. If age-based differential treatment is such that it is often compatible with, or even sometimes required for, unequal treatment of persons understood diachronically, then this may vindicate our intuitions that um, 
uh, age and age discrimination are special. The claim by um, Nosbaum that unequal treatment by age is just as evil as unequal treatment by race or gender seems to, seems to give insufficient weight to this fact. Now, all I've done is just to alert us to this fact. What needs to follow is a theory uh, of justice between young and old that is adequately responsive to this fact. And, and to do this, I need to introduce the corresponding puzzle about the temporality of egalitarian justice. So, should we take some water? So, at the end of the um, 1980s, a few philosophers, including Dennis McCurley and um, Larry Temkin, questioned the temporality of egalitarian justice. Egalitarians had spent a lot of time thinking about the equality of what question. Um, and they really, so, you know, is equality, um, is the right currency of egalitarian justice, welfare, resources, opportunities. Uh, and McCurley brought our attention to the fact that there was an important and yet largely ignored uh, question that concerned the temporal units through which distributions should occur. Uh, and so the equality through time debate emerged to answer this question. So consider this uh, figure they introduced uh, to explain the debate. So here we have two cases. Uh, let's call these two persons A and B, Anna and Bob. And they are compared, their well-being are being compared over um, segments of their life. So T1, T2, T3, T4, T5, let's uh, about 20 years each. And so uh, case one and case two are exactly the same, the exact same well-being points. Um, but they are just two different ways of looking at, of comparing them, right? So the first way, uh, we look at how they are doing over their complete lives. And in the second way, we look at how they are doing comparatively at each segment, each overlapping segment of their lives. So what the two cases illustrate is that depending on the time unit we adopt to register inequalities, we will be led to different assessments. In the first case, uh, we can add up those well-being points and we have 20 for each of those two. They are perfectly equal. In case two, we look at how they are doing at each segment of their life. And we will say, well, Anna and Bob are actually unequal at each of those segments. Um, if we focus on complete lives, Anna and Bob are equal. If we focus on simultaneous segments, uh, they are unequal at each stage of their overlapping lives. Now, depending on whether we adopt a complete life view or simultaneous segments view, we will be led to very different conclusions on which inequalities between young and old matter. And to show this, I need to go back to the distinction I made earlier between age groups and birth cohorts. Birth cohorts are a group of people who age together, while age groups are phases of transit through which different cohorts pass as their age. So to help you visualize this on the X um, axis, we have time. On the Y axis, we have age. Uh, and at any given time, we have, uh, it's very catural, but we have roughly four age groups here, children, young adults, uh, middle-aged adults, older adults, but each of those people belong to a birth cohort. So young adults, they belong to the birth cohorts of individuals who were born, let's say 25 years from now. Um, and those who are older a certain age today belong to a birth cohort, were born, uh, let's say uh, 60 years from now. So that just enables us to see that when we are comparing young and old, when we are comparing people at different stages of their lives, we might be doing two different things. We might be looking at how they are doing um, uh, comparatively as age groups at any given point, or we might be looking at how they are doing over their complete lives as birth cohorts. The first question is diachronic. 
and requires comparing people over their complete lives. While the second is synchronic and concerns how two age groups respectively fare over a limited time frame. So as you may have understood, uh, if you endorse the complete life egalitarian view, you will be moved by inequalities between birth cohorts. From a complete life's perspective, we are led to ascribe importance to an inequality between age groups only derivatively if it contributes to an overall inequality between, per between persons over their complete lives. If, for instance, the individuals in cohort A are disadvantaged compared to the individual in cohort B at T2, this only concerns us if it is not compensated later on or before in life. By contrast, if we take the approach that consists in registering inequalities between simultaneous segments, things will be exactly the other way around. We will now approach inequalities between age groups with suspicion, um, like an inequality in political power, as we saw earlier, between age groups at any given time. Okay, so figuring out uh, whether equality is best understood diachronically or synchronically is really essential and has critical implications for how we should think about inequalities between young and old. All right, so theory of justice have tended to apply their distributive principles to the temporal scope of a whole, of a whole life, a complete life. Justice as fairness, saves roles, focuses on inequalities in citizens' life prospects, their prospects over a complete life. And there are very good reasons for that. First, um, the complete life view resonates well with a widespread metaphysical view on persons, the continuous identity view. Since we tend to believe that individuals are one and the same in youth and old age, then we are more likely to be drawn to the complete life view. Consider the example of a state that has an enduring policy um, that ensures free public transportation for people as they reach a certain age, let's say 65. In such a case, the synchronic inequality in free access between a person who is below the age of 65 and a person who is above the age of 65 um, will, um, will not bother us at all. It seems unimportant because it's understood that the younger person will also likely benefit from the policy later in life. However, this is only true if we also contend that the younger person today is indeed the same person as the person who will benefit from the policy later on. Second, the egalitarian commitment to complete lives can be seen as the other side of the coin of the contemporary egalitarian commitment to the separateness of persons. Um, utilitarians, Rawls argues, treat interpersonal judgments as they would treat intrapersonal judgments. The striking features, I, qu I quote, of the utilitarian view of justice is that it does not matter how the sum of satisfactions is distributed among individuals any more than it matters how one man distributes satisfaction over time. The correct distribution in either case is which yields the maximum fulfillment. So from a liberal egalitarian perspective, maximizing utility is adequate within the life, but not interpersonally. That's the critique um, to utilitarians. So it's one thing um, to do something I don't like doing today to enjoy some benefit tomorrow. It's a completely different thing to ask Alex to do something he doesn't like to do today and um, for me to enjoy a benefit out of this tomorrow. This commitment to the separateness of persons goes hand in hand with the view that inequalities within the life are not so problematic, which in turn give, gives us a further stimulus to endorse the complete life view. 
to be sure, this comment, like the previous comment on the continuity view, do not really justify the appeal to complete life egalitarianism. Rather, they explain why the complete life view has, taken as, has been taken as a default among egalitarians. Persons are understood, defined, and valued by appeal to both the continuity view and the separateness of persons uh, argument. Insofar as we care about inequalities between persons understood in this way, we are easily led to complete lives as the relevant unit of egalitarian concern. Third, egalitarians are often drawn to the diachronic approach because they value the joint ideals of uh, responsibility and compensation. Luck egalitarians, in particular, believe that the point of egalitarian justice is to ensure bad brute luck has as little impact as possible over people's lives. For this reason, those who are worse off through no fault of their own should be compensated. However, if individuals make free choices that have a negative impact on their lifetime prospects, then they will have to assume the cost of such choices. Similarly, we ought to neutralize the impact of brute luck so that a misfortune at T2, T0 might not generate complete life equality. And we may compensate you at T2 for the misfortune you suffered at T0. This dual rational of responsibility and compensation is fundamentally diachronic. The cut between choice and responsibility, and sorry, the cut between choice and circumstance is important precisely because it maintains diachronic equality between separate persons. This motivates the complete life's approach. Plus, um, the alternative of simultaneous segments appears quite weak theoretically. When we attempt to identify segments to which um, to apply the value of equality, we bump into an arbitrariness problem. Um, on simultaneous segments egalitarianism, we should worry if Bob is worse off than Anna at T2, but T2 is of course itself a collection of smaller segments, say two segments of 10 years. And it seems no less arbitrary to focus on either of those sub-segments uh, than to register inequality at T2. So you see the problem. Simultaneous segments view uh, tells us that inequalities over those 20 year segments do not cancel out over a whole life. But then how are we gonna be convinced that the inequalities at T2 and T, T2A and T2B, for example, uh, should cancel out over T2? You might say, fine, let's focus on even shorter segments, the smallest unit you can find. Um, but then we would be down to a week, an instant, like everyone else, Anna and Bob might well have good days and bad days. And yet it's not clear why we should consider that inequalities that occur within these smaller time units uh, cancel out over a larger segment. Okay, so defining the worse off on simultaneous segments egalitarianism would be very difficult and, um, and, and, and deciding who they are would become in a way arbitrary. And I think this arbitrariness issue gives further traction to the alternative of complete lives. It even led McCurley, who coined the view, to give up on it. Um, and in fact, to give up altogether on the possibility of making sense on the objectionable nature of synchronic inequalities from within egalitarianism. Okay, so there are quite a few generational implications of uh, the complete lives view that I take on board. Um, the first one is just basically that inequalities between courts matter. Inequalities between those two courts, A and B, we were just discussing. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, there is wide agreement about the basic view that we all matter equally. 
Um, and so uh, inequalities between all of us and our complete lives do matter. Inequalities between age groups at a given time matter when they generate inequalities between courts, right? So some inequalities between age groups will in fact, in fact yield inequalities between courts. One extreme example is that of a biased um, per capita spending by age. So imagine a, a, a court votes for um, uh, policies that benefits their age group only to vote them down when they don't benefit from it anymore and to now vote for other age policies that advantage them uh, at that point in time, right? So you could end up having those inequalities between age groups that yield inequalities between birth courts. So those are problematic. But there are issues that lead me to move, to move beyond diachronic fairness and beyond this complete life view. First, that view as such does not have much, much to say about inequalities between age groups beyond the derivative concern. Right? It's whatever you do, just make sure it doesn't turn into inequalities between per birth courts over time. Make sure it doesn't turn into uh, diachronic inequalities. But I want to know how to distribute resources between age groups beyond that. I want something more substantive. Uh, the complete life view doesn't really help us think about age discrimination, even when it's grounded on ageism. So, you know, we'll constantly have cases where we can see that for sure there's something wrong with that case. Um, complete life view, you know, doesn't seem to give us any reasons to worry about uh, ageist, age discrimination, for example. And then there is a very worrying caricature of complete life uh, egalitarianism, uh, which is complete life egalitarianism as changing places egalitarianism, which I just want to introduce now. So, um, let me introduce two cases which have been um, referred to as changing places egalitarianism in a way to uh, caricature complete life egalitarianism. The first is a society uh, of swapping caste where two castes swap position every 20 years. Caste one dominates caste two for 20 years and caste two dominates caste one for the subsequent 20 years and then they switch again. At the end of their lives, the two castes will have exerted equal amounts of control over each other. They will have been masters or slaves for their entire lives, but they will have been so equally. And in the other changing places case, uh, uh, we have an unequal city where elderly people live in miserable and overcrowded retirement homes with little prospect for happiness, while younger people live in affluent residences. The older residents enjoy the same happy lifestyle in their past, and the younger residents will end up in the same miserable homes themselves when they grow old. So as you will have understood, what those cases have in common is that they are compatible with world life equality, but while the protagonists are equal over time, they are objectionably unequal during specific segments or in part at any given time. If complete lives were the only relevant unit of egalitarian concern, McCurley worries, we would not find these examples so objectionable. And yet these cases would rub anyone even minimally committed to egalitarianism in the wrong way. Those societies feel strongly dystopian. The examples invite us to revisit this commitment to diachronic equality. And yet, as, I just shown, as I've just shown, the simultaneous segment's view uh, doesn't seem to be a strong contender to make sense of our intuitions and help us cash out the value of some, some form of um, synchronic equality. Okay, so my proposal is that the arbitrariness problem only undermines the capacity of distributive frameworks to make sense of these changing places inequalities. As Lippert Rasmussen uh, sums it up well, Insofar as we care about inequality because we care about fairness, 
Equality of our lifetimes is what we should be interested in. Complete lives may be thought as the par excellence time unit of distributive fairness, the least arbitrary way of applying the value of distributive equality through time. A solely distributive view will find it difficult, if not impossible, to provide better reasons for adopting temporal stages than complete lives. But rather than suggesting that there aren't any egalitarian reasons to object to those inequalities, I think this suggests that some of our important egalitarian intuitions cannot be captured adequately by distributive accounts. If we open up to the broader realm of reasons we have to object to inequalities, however, we can put forward a promising egalitarian um, case. So I want to propose that what is worrying in those changing places cases is not that there is a time slice inequality in distribution that is unfair, but rather that relationships of inequality may pertain at any points. Uh, relational egalitarians argue that the aim of egalitarian justice is to establish communities whose members are able to relate as equals. And I want to propose here that we have relational reasons rather than reasons of distributive fairness to object. In the swapping caste example, the community members cannot be said to stand as equals in any meaningful sense um, at any point in their life. In fact, they never engage in egalitarian relationships. In the unequal city case, one of the issues that we are responding to is fundamentally relational. Elderly residents are spatially segregated from the affluent youth. They are also likely to become marginalized from the rest of their community. Distributive frameworks contend that there is a good X that must be distributed fairly across individuals. And as we have seen, the normative significance of a temporal distributive inequality could not be spelled out if not by appeal to the broader um, diachronic distribution. These were reasons of fairness. On the relational view, we have no such reasons to exclusively focus on complete lives. What we care about primarily is that our communities are free of inegalitarian relationships and that persons are able to stand tall in front, in front of each other. Uh, and that just isn't the case. The distributive paradigm is fundamentally static. It measures and compares a good X over a time segment. The comparison relation though, is not the only interesting relation that we should pay attention to as egalitarians. There are a range of ways in which relations can be objectionable. Phases of domination, marginalization or segregation do not cancel out diachronically as easily as distributive pat patterns. These phases are non-derivatively offensive they matter to us precisely and directly for the relationships they contain or are likely to contain. From this perspective, the fact that equality over complete lives is granted in both cases is beside the point. This leads me to synchronic relational equality. It sets limits to the kinds of synchronic inequalities we might tolerate when complete lives equality is granted. Okay. So there has been an intra-egalitarian controversy uh, about whether relational reasons are truly distinct or whether they can easily be captured or redescribed as distributive. Couldn't the good X that relational egalitarians care about distributing fairly or equally be power or the basis of equal status or the basis of equal respect or something like that? And my answer here is no. My view lends support to the view that relational reasons are truly distinctive. They cannot be redescribed as distributive 
They don't have the same shape or form, the same shortcomings, and they can lead us to distinct conclusions in non-marginal cases. Here, in the case of synchronic inequalities and inequalities between age groups. So the topic of age group justice has not attracted much attention from um, egalitarians, uh, as I mentioned, as I started this presentation. And I think if we follow the analysis I just provided, this oversight um, can in part be explained by the dominance of the distributive paradigm over egalitarian thought. I want to argue that inequalities between age groups matter insofar as they constitute relationships of inequalities and partly independently of the fact that the young will end up being old at some point too. Um, inequality, uh, sorry, the commitment to synchronic relational equality leaves us with really important questions to ask about our communities. Are young and old um, equally respected and recognized? Or are the very young stereotyped and the very old marginalized? Are older adults treated with condescension and younger adults patronized? Are elderly people able to appear without shame? Are the young exploited in the labor markets? Um, so we could, we could continue. And we have egalitarian reasons to worry about inequalities of this kind, even when they don't lead to diachronic inequalities. I think thinking that way helps us bring under the microscope a variety of phenomena underexplored by philosophers so far, like segregation by age, infantilization by age, uh, and here I mean both the infantilization of um, uh, older members of our communities, especially in care homes, um, but also the infantilization of young adults. Um, and ageist discrimination, right? So uh, the, the kind of discrimination that's grounded on an ideology uh, about particular groups, um, particular age groups being uh, inferior to others. So um, I think this um, addition brings a lot of important phenomena to light. Okay, I'm almost done. As I promised, I just want to give you a glimpse at the full account. So inequalities between young and old are objectionable in three cases, when they lead to birth court inequalities. So I started with that. It follows from the complete life view, complete life intuition. And the basic idea here is that um, it is unjust for a birth court to shape institutions and design public policies in a way that neglects the interest of other birth courts. The third is the one I just spent quite some time on, the synchronic relational equality, and I'm not going to say anything more. But I did want to say something about lifespan prudence because I do dedicate a, a full chapter to this in the book and it's quite important to the implications I end up, um, uh, to the, the key implications uh, uh, for my argument. So I didn't want to live without mentioning it. Lifespan prudence initially comes from Norman Daniels and is really, it's really working within the frame of diachronic distributive fairness. Daniels' brilliant idea is that one way to approach distributive imbalances between young and old is to ask whether they correspond to what an ideally placed agent would have chosen for his or her own life. What looking at distributions between age group in this way does is it makes it clearer why a distribution between age groups needs to be assessed by looking at its effect on diachronic utility. An age priority rule, let's say of organ distribution, that prioritizes a 20-year-old patient over a 60-year-old patient, treats age groups unequally at T0, but makes all our lives go better by maximizing our chances of living a life of normal length. 
Distributions of resources between age groups that are prudent will be fair to both young and old diachronically and will make their lives go better than alternative arrangements. So to illustrate what this uh, uh, second principle means for, um, for the implication of this, the addition of this principle, I think the example of youth unemployment is really good here. So early unemployment in youth is particularly corrosive, which means that it tends to cluster into further negative consequences over the life course. Uh, that's what sociologists call scarring effects, including more risks of unemployment later in life, stagnant wages, and a range of other effects. So prudent planning recommends blocking this diachronic clustering of disadvantage. It gives us reasons to aggressively combat youth poverty and unemployment, even when rates of youth unemployment are not higher than the average, in fact. And so clearly, it gives us strong reasons to reduce youth unemployment rates when they are two or four times higher than average. So to finish, a few, a decade later, so what was wrong about the RSA gen based on this framework? So I think I have some answers now. Uh, first, I think the RSA gen and the differential treatment in the benefit system of young adults was grounded on ageist stereotypes about the young as lazy and unmotivated, and I think that reveals that the young were viewed, are viewed uh, as having lower social status. And that's particularly problematic also in light of the young's political marginalization. So I think from the perspective of relational equality, we have lots of reasons to worry about that. From the perspective of lifespan prudence, we now know that poverty and economic insecurity mm -hmm. at a young age can cluster over time and have a range of negative effects over our complete lives. A prudent distribution of resources would block this negative clustering phenomena to ensure early experiences of disadvantage do not cluster into further experiences of disadvantage later. Denying those under the age of 25 access to these resources is indefensible from the perspective of lifespan prudence. And finally, from the perspective of cohort equality, youth who socialize in the context of job scarcity, if anything, uh, need to be compensated for the effects this has on them as a cohort, those scaring effects. Um, so obviously denying um, them the resources they need to face um, this uh, job insecurity uh, is unfair and that way too. I'm done. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you. I'll just be sure also to um, get access to online questions. Apologies, I left the uh, tablet here. I'll take the questions from here, both uh, in person and online. I'll start with three questions from the audience here and then move on to bundling three questions online. So please raise your hand if you have a question. Uh, yeah, the gentleman here at the front. Hi, Juliana. Thank you for your presentation. And if you wouldn't mind, sorry, stating your name and affiliation when you uh, ask a question. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name is Suleiman Iqbal. I'm a master's student at LSE studying social and public policy. And um, so my question is, from a policy perspective, how do you prevent this 
debate on age inequality from having polarizing effects, whereby the young and the old view each other as kind of enemies. So how can we get young and old people to view each other as allies rather than enemies? Thank you. Good, thank you. We'll take three questions in succession. Um, the lady over here in the green top. Yeah. Uh, over there, yeah, thank you, in the middle. Hi, um, thanks very much. Really enjoyed that. Um, I'm Rosanna. I'm here in a personal capacity, but I work for Parliament, so I guess I'm interested in the policy questions as well. I was particularly interested in whether inequalities between birth cohorts are always objectionable. Particularly, is there a, a, a general view? I certainly think most people would have it, for instance, with their own children. that You'd actively want them to have an improved um, overall life than your own. Um, is, does your idea present a problem for that? And I guess an extension of that is what responsibilities do legislators, for instance, have on actively trying to improve the overall birth cohort of subsequent generations? Thanks. And then, uh, yes, your neighbour had a hand up as well. I've noted your hand, sir. I'll get to you soon. Yeah. I was going to ask a variant of that question. So. Ah, okay. In that case, the gentleman here at the front, please. Uh, David Neil Smith, I hold a, a Master of Science degree from the LSE, which I took quite a few years ago. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it, it seems to me one area which is creating great inequalities in terms of access to services of many different kinds between the young and old is, of course, the use of technology. Uh, uh, the young are schooled in technology. They've got, you know, GCSEs in IT, but uh, uh, the old generation never had that uh, uh, training. And if they've retired since technology came in uh, in the working place in, in a big way, those particularly in their 70s, 80s and 90s uh, are, have been particularly distressed with the uh, lockdown and the increase of technology and being excluded and even more isolated uh, from so many things. You know, Zoom meetings are sort of alien, <laughs> alien to them. Um, and uh, uh, I, I've, I've been taken back in sort of talking to, uh, including uh, uh, some of my own uh, uh, relatives, say, well, I don't have a computer. I don't uh, I don't deal with emails. I don't have a smartphone. And I wanted to go to this concert. It said, you know, you can only book online. I can't go. Uh, you know, I can't, uh, a sports event. I wanted to go to a sports event and book it. I couldn't. It said it was just online. And this is happening more, more and more. And, I, you know, I think this is a, a, an indirect form of uh, uh, discrimination online only, effectively, uh, against that whole generation. I'd be interested in your comments. Thank you. Thank you so much for the really great questions. Uh, I think I'll take them in reverse order. Um, the last question, I, I think I couldn't agree more. I think um, in order for us to establish communities where we are able to relate as equals, we first need to be in the same spaces and to be able to actually relate to one another. Um, and so I think a concern, on, a concern for relational equality, synchronic relational equality, means that we need to pay attention to patterns of marginalization and isolation and segregation. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think there's something you said as well that's uh, about birth cohort equality because um, so some cohorts will be advantaged in particular ways, but not others, right? So there's always the issue of how do you make a judgment about 
which court is better off when some courts are better in terms of access to technologies and healthcare, let's say, when others might have um, had more job security. Um, so I think in thinking about what it is that we owe each other, um, what it is that we owe successive courts, we must pay attention to the important areas of life um, and also pay attention to how marginalization from one particular area of life might have effects in other areas of life. So, uh, for example, political um, marginalization that results from a technological marginalization. So, uh, on the, the issue of um, social progress, so yes, I, so the account doesn't um, uh, is not doesn't go against social progress. So. Otherwise, that would be a big problem, I think, because most of people's intuitions are very much in the sense of wanting their children to be better off. Um, so I think um, one of the, so this is the part of the framework that's really centered on notions of distributive fairness. So it's not um, that the next generation needs to be exactly equal to you. It is that uh, we don't want the next generation to be worse off through no fault of its own. If the prior generation is worse off, through a decision, a collective decision to invest in the next generation, to save more than equality requires for the next generation, then that's not unfair, right? That's the result of a decision of the generation to invest or save more for the next generation. So equality is the best baseline, but um, that generation can make a conscious decision to save more. One thing to be careful about, though, is that, of course, here I'm talking about birth court equality, and age inequality, trying to isolate it so we can make sense of it. But there are also other kinds of inequalities we should worry about. So the position of the worse off in the previous generation is also to be considered, right? Should we, you know, we need to consider the interest of those worse off in that generation when we consider saving a lot for the next generation as well. Um, and then the first question on polarization, um, very good question. This is something that I worried about when I was writing on youth quotas. So do we now want young parliamentarians to defend the interest of the young and, 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 and send the message to other parliamentarians that now their job is not to represent the interest of the young anymore, but because obviously that wouldn't work that way at all. So I think um, what I want to say here is simply that we need to think about those issues collectively, but we all need a seat at the table in thinking about those issues. Um, and, um, and I think ensuring that there are more space where that are age integrating is a way to ensure we have uh, those conversations and we come to decisions collectively. Good, thank you. I have here uh, two questions online, which I'll read out. The first is from Thomas Roche. How is productivity part of the equality discussion? Productivity in any sense, not just the economic, but also social. Old people for their sageness and experience are more valued in, for example, Asia, and more community conscious societies, should we regard this as a challenge? And we might sharpen it and say, if we defer, especially to old, older people because of their wisdom, isn't this a form of uh, comparative marginalization of the young? Um, so what would your view say on that? Mm -hmm. The second is from Michael Otsuka, a philosopher here in, at LSE. Your illustration of the complete lives view involved the summing of the total well-being, but well-being level at a time can matter as well as the quantity of well-being, says, as indicated by the fact that we don't think it egalitarian that someone who lives much longer than someone else should have a much lower average quality of life to ensure that her sum of total well-being is the same in everyone else. I think the sensitivity to quality of life at a time and not just the sum of total well-being 
isn't completely explicable in relational egalitarian terms. What do you think? Okay, great. Excellent question. So I'll start with Mike's question. Um, I think quality of life at a time matters very much, but I think I address it through the Prudential Iceman account mainly. Um, so it's not just about distributive fairness over complete lives. It's also about um, looking at inequalities between age groups and thinking about what it says, um, thinking about how it translates or doesn't translate into an optimal distribution of resources over a life course. And in doing that, we think about well-being over a complete life, and we think about how well-being at different life stages, of course, um, is connected with a life well-lived. Um, so I agree. I think I am not going for a relational egalitarian account all the way down, actually. Uh, even though I was more concerned in this book um, by making the case that we need relational reasons and we can't be distributive egalitarian all the way down. Um, I think, and so I wasn't as concerned about making the case that you can't have a, a relational account all the way down. Um, I do believe that actually um, that case could potentially be made. And so the uh, hybrid account I embrace really has reasons of distributive fairness and relational reasons. Uh, the question on productivity and equality, that's a really good one. Um, so there were a couple of things about the, you know, in a way, the veneration of seniority. Um, so here I would say that, I, yes, I do tend to worry about it when it, uh, again, it has to do with those fears of when it goes from one area of life to other areas of life. So um, actually on all the countries that have youth quotas in place, there are only a few, they are all in Africa. Uh, where the gap between the average age of the parliamentarian and the average age of the population was just critically high. Um, so, for example, the average age of parliaments could be 65 years old and the average age of the population could be 18. Um, I think you can be in societies where you have a veneration of elders, but then we, where you end up having a disconnect, a very important disconnect in age between parliamentary institutions and the population, for instance. So I think that as, as such, being venerated um, because of your seniority in a particular sphere might not be uh, a, a matter of concern for relational egalitarians, but it does uh, end up being a matter of concerns if it has implications in spheres of life that uh, we do care about. And it might worry, it, it might matter on its own as well in the employment sphere, but I think I worry about it even more if it spreads to uh, the way we view each other in, in other contexts. Good. Further questions? Um... Let me see. Yes, over here, the lady first, and then there, Emma. Hi, um, my name is Emma Klein. I'm here in personal capacity. Um, so in your opinion, do you believe that we currently live in an era where there is more consciousness of intergenerational inequalities? So, for example, um, there is a lot of a talk and sort of discourse about um, in the media about privileged baby boomers um, versus disadvantaged millennials. Um, and if there is more consciousness today of intergenerational inequalities, um, why do you think that might be? Very good. Then uh, the gentleman here. Thanks very much. And thank you for a very thought-provoking talk. You provide a number of examples that are very compelling of why the young get the short end of the stick, but there was one about which I had some doubt, so I'd like your thoughts on it. Is it 
accurate or in what way is it accurate to describe the young as being politically disenfranchised? If we think of outcomes, yes, you're absolutely right. Expenditure per capita and a bunch of other things is higher on the old. But this may have a fairly obvious root cause in democracies, namely the young don't vote. Um, so if the lesser weight they get in the political process is the result of a choice made by the young, wisely or unwisely, is that in some sense unfair treatment or is it something else? Very good. And just behind you, you could pass it just behind if you want. Yep. Hi, uh, Kieran Oberman, uh, philosophy here at the LSE. Um, so I wanted to ask about uh, what you thought about democratic consent. So um, it came up in answer to one of the questions. You said, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with investing in the next generation. You make this generation worse off, but the next generation gets better. And we can see that as a form of consent. Of course, you might worry about minorities here. Um, but the, the particular worry I had was about what this meant about your cases of um, inequality within between generations. With you know, so you've got these different examples: um, the the master slave example, where they they get to switch, um, or another one where you had an example where the elderly are, uh, in de live in destitution. Um, or we could think of a, you know, th those are pretty harsh examples. You can think of it just examples where society has decided to, um, well, maybe a, a variant of your second case, they've just decided for good economic reasons to, um, there's economic costs to uh, um, investing in the uh, um, services to the elderly that, you're, that you would like. Um, and so the majority in the society just decide not to invest there. So again, we've got democratic consent. It violates one of your principles. Or sorry, what do you think about the possible symmetry between those two cases? Does it worry you in the, the, the case in which you answer the question where we would like to go with you and say, yes, let's invest in the future. And then these other cases where you've got a democracy making a vote to, to in favor of the kinds of cases which you were arguing against. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much uh, for the three questions. Um, so let me take them and I was gonna say reverse order again, but I think I need more time for your question, Karen. <laughs> so the, the question on whether there is more interest or more consciousness about generational equality and, and what does it say? What does it mean? Um, I do think that there's a lot in terms of a framing of the problems we are facing in terms of a generational war, um, which I don't think is very helpful. And I think in a way, one of the motivation for the project was to try to reintegrate those questions into a more egalitarian framework, because there was a concern from the left, especially that intergenerational issues were a distraction from other inequalities that did matter. So I felt as if there was no way from within egalitarian thinking to actually make sense of what's wrong with particular forms of age-based differential treatment or generational inequality. So it's not completely answering your, your question, but it's just saying that, yes, there have been waves of thinkers, politicians using the vocabulary of intergenerational equity in a way that was quite conservative. Um, and I don't think that um, 
people who argue for intergenerational justice uh, or for intergenerational fairness will necessarily agree with uh, a lot of what I have to say, especially since eventually I'm interested in how those intersect with other forms of inequalities and, and in thinking more generally about what social justice requires. Um, and, and young people don't vote. Um, is it unfair to say that it's just their choice and so they are not marginalized, disenfranchised? Um, so, you know, so first I think there is a de jure exclusion, disenfranchisement of some young persons since um, we don't let 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old vote. So I think occasionally it's a de jure uh, exclusion. For those who are allowed to vote, um, you know, I think again, I wouldn't necessarily put the blame on one particular age group. I think we just have to think all together about what it means to build communities where we are able to relate as equals, both treating young adults as equal partners in thinking about uh, how to design our social institutions, um, but also um, investing in um, you know, children's education and so that young adults, when they reach the voting age, whatever that, that is, um, feel very compelled to vote and don't, don't face too many additional barriers to voting. So um, is it unfair? I would say yes, I, but I think mostly I'm interested in the result of this de facto marginalization and, and how, what we can do to um, move beyond that. Uh, Kieran, I think in terms of democratic consent, um, so things are much more complicated than I made them think when I responded earlier. Um, um, and I think, you know, that's one of the, one of the things I worried about is exactly what you pointed out, which is a minority. I was thinking about the worst off economically, but it could be any minority um, whose interest might not be adequately captured and a decision um, of a particular birth court to invest in the next without actually taking seriously enough the disadvantage of those who are worse off. Um, so, so I do think that there are lots of very complicated issues that arise when you move from the individual level to the group level in, in thinking about court equality and court justice. Um, but I think what I only meant to suggest was that um, the if we are at the group level and thinking about inequalities between the group, um, we need to think both about whether this was a conscious decision, however perfectly democratic, about the particular generation to, to help the next more than equality requires, whether it was just brute luck, you know, it just happened that one generation turned out to be much better than the other one because of some events, some financial crisis. Some, um, and uh, also thinking about subgroups within the groups. So comparing the worst off in both generations is pertinent uh, at the group level. So, um, so yes, there are tons of issues around consents uh, that I actually haven't explored as much as, as, as uh, maybe I should. Good, I have here another online question here from Adrian Lee, who uh, says he's currently graduating with an MA uh, at the age of 67. And uh, he says, "Will, in your view, do organizations such as the University of the Third Age help to address the types of relational inequality that you're concerned about? I'd like to follow it up with a question of my own about mm -hmm. how much this framework of relational e equality mm -hmm. can really help us with some of the things that worry us, even in the case that you, one of the cases you focus on of the unequal city of the young living happily together in opulence and the uh, old living miserable lives uh, in, in isolation and there's no mixing. Well, we 
No good. It's 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 in this imaginary example. I wanted to see if there might be more that bothers us than mere relationships of marginalization or exclusion, mm-hmm. um, or even regarding it as imprudent. Let's suppose for the moment that it is the result of prudent lifetime choices. So one thing that makes for a good society is not merely that we regard one another as equals who can stand tall in front of each other, but that we have certain forms of sympathy and care for each other. And of course, sympathy is most strongly elicited naturally by how people fare at a given time next to you, around you, etc. And it can be blocked by not being around each other. And I wonder whether this idea of relational equality isn't too focused on our rational capacities as fellow citizens to stand and look each other in the eye and so on, when there are lots of parts of our lives where we are dependent on others. And what we need most is sympathy, concern, care. And of course, those periods in which we're most in need of those are very early and very late in life, at least. Mm -hmm. So I wondered whether you're you're still not missing one part of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. which could also be part of the explanation for what might worry us about one of your examples. It's a really good point. So I think think you're right in a way that the... Because initially I was going to go with prudence in in addressing those kinds of issues, but then you're right that the intrapersonal framework in a way escapes all those concerns that we have about sympathy and care. It's not just what is the optimal way to distribute resources. It is... How does it make us feel as humans to see the other um, um, group um, so much worse off than we are in terms of well-being, for example? So I think the it's interesting because you said that this rational capacity to stand in front of each other, but I had assumed that the relational view had a lot of that built in, in, in itself, the sympathy and care, um, because it's about being able to see, being able to sympathize, in fact, with the person in front of you, because what you see is your equal. So I do think that it could be prescribed from within relational egalitarianism. But um, the one last thing I would say is, um, I think there might be many other things going on that might be wrong um, outside of egalitarian justice too, right? So what I was really trying to do is to say, what are egalitarian reasons we might have? To, to worry here. Do we need to give up on egalitarianism as a way to make sense of those cases? Uh, some people have done that. So McCurley has done that. He went into prioritarianism instead. Casper um, Lippert-Hasmussen has done that. He said, well, uh, clearly here we have reasons that are about community and relations, and those are external to egalitarian justice. Uh, so we, we, egalitarianism is that chronic, right? Uh, if you want uh, to make sense of what's going on here, you have to look outside the uh, egalitarianism. So what I want to say is actually you don't have to look outside egalitarianism because uh, I think an egalitarian account that doesn't see this as problematic from, from within is, is uh, weaker than an account that can explain what's wrong here. So again, I think there will be other, other reasons to worry about, especially the unequal city example um, and the swapping caste, you know, freedom. Uh, but I think I was just trying to find um, an egalitarian reason for why we should worry. And then the question of continuous lifelong education, or lifelong or continuous education. Um, That's a really interesting one. And I do think that it's part of building communities where people can remain um, engaged in a way that they don't risk becoming isolated or marginalized. Um, It's interesting because education is often the the best example of what prudent planning means, right? Because you 
you wouldn't want um, to not have access to education early in life because some of the resources, some of the benefits of access to education early on, you will benefit from your entire life. So a very prudent distribution is one that ensures you have access to education as early as possible. Um, but I think we have other reasons, uh, perhaps reasons of prudence as well, but also reason, relational reasons to want education to be a good we have access to throughout our lives. Good. Questions from the audience here. Thank you. Uh, over here, please start. Then the lady in white over here. And then I'll take another question at the back. Mohammed, um, philosophy of science, master student. Um, so my question was in relation to the our intuitions with the earlier cases that you um, uh, you had on the in your presentation, and so uh, is it fair to say that with some of our intuitions when it comes to identity markers, that the historical backdrop that each identity marker sits on um, makes a difference? And what I mean, what I mean by that is, um, I guess, race, gender, are particularly blood soaked. So if you talk about um, some of the arbitrary violence um, that is imposed, in, in, imposed on people with those markers, it's, it's quite significant. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, to, it's not to negate the fact that in the past there might have been some, uh, I guess, uh, arbitrary violence imposed on people based on particular age groups. But I think it's fair to say it's not to the same extent. Um, so I think uh, my question is that, do you think, that type of implicit reasoning um, is why we might um, single out um, race and gender as particularly egregious. Um, and my, my other question was... Um, if, if you don't mind, I'll just take one question and then we, we might circle around back to you. Thank you. Please, over here. Uh, so, uh, Anne Phillips, I'm from the government department. So I, I'm very sympathetic to your generally the relational approach and the light that casts on thinking about age discrimination. But my question's actually more on the, dis the distributive side and it's kind of provoked by some of the kind of thinking in the discussion about uh, uh, inequality between age cohorts. Because if you think about this in a more global perspective and you bring in the effects of imperialism, you bring in climate change, you bring in all the ways in which cohorts in the richer countries have uh, enjoyed huge benefits of resources. Um, actually, the future age cohorts in those countries, you know, in the interests of world equality, actually need to uh, need to have a much lower um, uh, benefit series of benefits. So there needs to be, at one level, you could say there needs to be inequality between. There needs to be a reduction in the. Uh, at any rate, the distributional uh, enjoyment of age cohorts in the richer countries, though hopefully without mm -hmm. any impact on their relational equality. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you had any, mm -hmm. any thoughts about that. Good, we'll take one more question. The gentleman in the blue t-shirt over there. Uh, yeah, one back, just, yeah, perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Richard Bradley. I'm in the philosophy department as well. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you about national service, actually, because I think it's one of the striking things that national service, I think, is always something that's done by the, the, the young and not the old, and it might seem odd in a way. Um, so, uh, so these are 
periods of national service not always but might involve um, the young making quite significant sacrifices on the behalf of the rest of society. And it doesn't really, from a cohort perspective, seem especially problematic, I guess. But you might think it, it ought to be problematic from the perspective of relational equality. And yet, I'm not sure that it is. So, so, so that's the sort of, I mean, I, that's the sort of puzzle for me. And I'm wondering whether it's because we think of national service as something like a, a something you do in order to sort of earn your earn your spurs, sort of, you know, to if you want to be treated as an equal, then this is what you have to do in order to be kind of admitted to the club or something like that. So that uh, uh, somehow there's something again missing from this notion of relational equality, which is a recognition that there might be periods in which you're not treated equally, as it were, uh, so that uh, you qualify as, as part of the, the community of equals at a later point. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for these questions. Um, so actually, the, the first question and the last question, to me, um, I think I can take them together because, so your question was excellent about the, the, the historical backdrop. And, you know, obviously that's a very important um, um, difference um, to look at um, when we think about race and gender on the one hand and age on the other. Um, but I wouldn't be, you know, as sure as you are about the fact that they're, you know, the treatment of young adults or the treatment of those older weren't, you know, barbaric in all sorts of ways uh, in history. And I, I think we are just reckoning with the ways in which this was um, unjust. Um, obviously, I would think about, you know, institutions in which we put people as they reach a certain age, especially uh, when they were from, uh, when they didn't have a lot of money. Um, and also the treatment of the young, you know, in authoritarian educations and no, no rights, but also thinking about national service. It's actually interesting that the Democratic Convention in the U.S. introduced quotas for, young, for the young during the Vietnam War because there was this very strong disconnect between who was making decisions and who was being sent to war. So, you know, from a complete life egalitarian perspective, of course, you could imagine that there are rights and duties we have at different times and that could be totally fair. Um, but there is, of course, the issue of who gets a say in what's the right way to distribute those burdens and benefits over time. Even if it doesn't violate distributive fairness, we might still have very strong objections about why it should be a particular age group, why it should be 17-year-olds being sent to war. And so, so I think the, the, they are. Um, this is where those are cases where. Um, I think we need to look beyond just the complete life, the, the complete life rational to think about how there are still inequalities that we should grapple with and that are important to consider. And Anne's question is very important. Um, I don't think I have a very good answer. I have to confess that, you know, initially as I was thinking about this project, I was thinking about two types of marginalization. Uh, one was really political and the other one was in the labor market. And both of these, I was thinking of them at the domestic level and, and you know, what, what parameters need to be taken into account in deciding what's the right policy response. And occasionally it would step above that level and think about a region like the EU um, youth job guarantee, or in fact, indeed youth quotas policies um, in several countries in Africa. Um, but those are very important questions. And, and I do think that a very difficult piece of this puzzle, and I try to do this in the book occasionally, but um, could have done enough in retrospect, is 
um, bringing those questions back in their articulation and their intersection with other um, uh, issues of justice, um, gender, race, class, and, and global justice. And um, I do think that the relational approach often is illuminating in thinking about what is the right thing to do when there are conflicting uh, intuitions. Um, and um, um, it, it, for example, in thinking about how gender and age overlap and thinking about how ageism and sexism overlap and in thinking about um, those issues, I've, I found that the relational approach, or drawing a lot on the relational approach, was helping see what's most important in adjudicating all those um, conflicting uh, intuitions. Um, but that's, that's a really good point, and I'd love to think more about that. Good. Um, I see that we are, we've uh, exhausted our time, and uh, I, the time flew by, and I had lots of notes and ideas that I, I wanted to question you on as well, and I'm sure many other uh, contributors do too. But please join me in thanking Juliana Bidadanur for a wonderful time. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.